Well, good morning, Redstone Elizabethan. Uh, we are in part three of our summer teaching series that we've been doing on different doctrines. Uh, I have been tasked with a super easy doctrine this morning. Let me tell you what it is, if I can get my clicker to work here. Maybe, maybe not. Turn it on, I've been told. That would help. Not that one other way. Angels, Satan, and demons. All right, any experts in angelology or demonology in this room? Me either. We're in the same boat. All right, awesome. So um, I am excited to share all the things that I've learned over these past few weeks in uh, diving deep into this topic. Um, as you are aware, um, there are a whole lot of things that we could say about angels, Satan, and demons. So you will not be getting a full uh, seminary uh, teaching in uh, this particular morning. I'm uh, limited in the time that I have, but I do want to share the main truths that I feel like I want you all to take away about angels, Satan, and demons. So forewarning, there are a lot of points. So if you want to go ahead and grab your worship guide, that's going to be the best way for you to uh, track with all the things that I'm saying. Hopefully they are cohesive and uh, make sense as we walk through these scriptures together. But we're going to give, I'm going to basically give a foundational statement. Um, we'll start with angels um, and then we'll, I'll give a Bible passage specifically relating to that statement. And so I've got one opportunity to teach on this topic. So I'm going to give you as much as I possibly can. Um, so what you're going to hear this morning is who angels are what their purposes are, and then why it's important to learn about them. And then we're going to do the same exact thing with Satan and demons, who, what, and why. And so my goal this morning, and hopefully any time that I teach, is to be faithful to the scriptures, all right? So um, some pastors in particular like to take liberties when it comes to this particular doctrine. You will not hear me taking liberties on angels, Satan, and demons. I'm going to stick to the script, stick to the word of God, and what is super clear in his word word. Um, so there's all kinds of interesting and uh, mysterious things out there about angels and Satan and demons. I'd be happy to kick around some of those things with you in a personal conversation. Um, but uh, let's go ahead and get into uh, our topic this morning. So I do, before I start, want to show a couple things to you. These are references that I'm going to keep coming back to throughout the morning. They're both by Wayne Grudem. The first one is called Systematic Theology. Um, it is a massive textbook. Um, forewarning, but I will encourage you, if you want to learn not just about this particular doctrine, but any doctrine um, of the Bible, that you would pick up this resource. It's about 30 bucks on Amazon. Um, it looks really intimidating when you see it, but I promise it's very readable. It's very easy to understand. Uh, Wayne Grudem does a great job of uh, giving all, all viewpoints of a particular doctrine, but also he's really great about just really sound theology and explaining that to just everyday lay people like you and I. Um, and then Christian beliefs, my favorite part about this one is it's 159 pages. And so he is very concise about uh, these uh, doctrines, these basic foundational Christian beliefs that you and I um, can explore. So I want to encourage you in those things as well. Um, thankfully, the scriptures do tell us a lot about angels. Uh, from Genesis to Revelation, directly or indirectly, you'll see the term angels or angelic beings around 300 times. So I don't know if we pay a lot of attention to that. I personally don't think about how often angels are mentioned throughout the scriptures, um, but they definitely are. Throughout the Bible, angels are referred to as multiple names. And this isn't the full comprehensive list, but some of those include sons of God, holy ones, spirits, watchers, thrones, dominions, authorities, morning stars, cherubim, living creatures, seraphim. Wayne Grudem describes angels this way, and if you are a note taker, I would encourage you to write this down. We're going to break down each of these phrases, but hopefully this is a helpful framework for you as it was for me. So angels are created spiritual beings with moral judgment and high intelligence, but without physical bodies. Angels are created spiritual beings with moral judgment and high intelligence, 
but without physical bodies. So the first thing that I want to dive into is that angels are created spiritual beings. We see in Psalm 148, it says this, Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For he, referring to God, commanded and they were created. So we need to know that angels were first and foremost created by God. Not only that, but they are also spiritual beings. Hebrews 1 says, and to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? So I'm going to share more in a moment about how angels specifically minister to the people of God. Uh, but what you need to know is that angels are created spiritual beings. Angels have high intelligence. And the reason that we know that is because they speak to people. You see this all throughout the scriptures. Angels have the ability to speak with people and to hold conversations. And um, the most common one that we probably think of is Mary. Uh, or excuse me, angel, the angel of the Lord speaking to Mary and Mary Magdalene after Jesus' resurrection um, at the tomb. Matthew 28 tells us the angel of the Lord descended from heaven, rolled back the stone and said to the women, do not be afraid. Jesus is not here. He is risen. Can't even begin to fathom what it would be like first and foremost to see an angel in person in real life, but then have an angel speak to me. Anytime that you read about an angel um, appearing to someone, they're freaking out, right? Like they are, they are uh, gasping probably for breath in that moment because of the sheer uh, uh, beauty or awe or wonder um, of who they really are and what they are like. The scriptures prove that angels do have high intelligence. Third thing that I want us to see is that angels praise God and obey his voice. And this helps us kind of transition to one of the ways that God has, has purposed them to, to live and to be. Angels praise God and obey his voice. We see this again all throughout the scriptures. Angels offering their words of worship unto him. It's interesting in the passage that I read a moment ago um, in Job 38, it says, while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. That term sang is actually translated as joyfully shouted. So picture this, angels joyfully shouting, resoundingly cried and rejoiced. Think about that. So this isn't like, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, right? Like they're not doing that, right? They're holy, 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 joyfully shouting, resoundingly crying out, rejoicing. I love the rest of that psalm. I want you to picture the angels singing loudly, rejoicing. Holy, 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 all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea, cherubim and seraphim falling down before thee, which wert and art and evermore shalt be. I want to off ramp for a moment, but what if our worship was more like that? What if our worship was more like that? Not for show, not because we have to. Not because it's part of our routine or we're trying to impress someone. But when you think, when you dwell, when you sing about the goodness and the faithfulness of God in your life, we can shout joyfully. Doesn't matter who's sitting next to us, who hears us. We all have terrible singing voices, right? Let's just own it, right? But the God says to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. He says, let's resoundingly cry out just like the angels do. Holy, holy, holy are you, Lord. We adore you. We worship you, Lord. When you sing about his forgiveness and love, you can rejoice in your heavenly father. That's how the angels are worshiping God. John, in his revelation, gives us a glimpse of what heaven will be like. And I love this passage in Revelation 5. 
It says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads, picture this, of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Angels praise God with joyful shouts, rejoicing together, resoundingly crying out to the one who is worthy of all of our worship. Angels also obey his voice. You see this in Psalm 103. It says, Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of the Lord. We also see this being played out in scripture. You see obedience happening through the angels. The Lord sends out an angel to minister to his people. You see an angel of the Lord helping Peter escape from jail. You see an angel ministering to Jesus after his temptations in the wilderness. So not only are they worshiping God, but they're also obedient to his word and to his commands. Third thing that I want us to see Angels guard and protect us. This is one of the purposes of angels. They guard and protect us. Psalm 34 says, The angel of the Lord encamps, literally set camp around those who fear him and delivers them. Psalm 91, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. The basic meaning of that word guard here is to watch over with great care. Don't you love that? To watch over with great care. What does that show us about God? It shows us that he sees us. It shows us that he loves us. That he pays attention to every single detail of our lives. And the way that he chooses sometimes to protect us and to guard over us is through the agent of angels. Why else is it important to know about angels? It's an interesting concept, but one that Wayne Grudem really teases out well and hopefully will we'll bring some clarity and encouragement to you this morning. When we compare ourselves with angels, we see God's great love and we see God's great plan for us. So both humans and angels are the only moral, highly intelligent creatures that God has made. And yet we, you and I as humans, we're made in the image of God, and they are not. You and I, as human beings, have the imago Dei, right? You and I have God's thumbprint on us. We have been made in the image of God. In Genesis 1, God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So when we compare ourselves to angels, we see God's great love for us. We have been created in the image of God. They have not. How else do we see God's great love for us? When the angels sinned, none were saved. I'm going to talk about this a little more um, in detail here in just a moment. But the Bible is very clear that after the angels rebelled against God, none of them were saved to eternal life with him. Second Peter says this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment... Again, it sounds like a strange idea to compare ourselves to angels, but when you really think and step back and process, we see God's great love for us. God didn't spare the angels when they rebelled against him. But what did he do for us? He sent his one and only son to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be made right, right? So that we could have fellowship with a holy God. That is something that you and I can be thankful for. I want to go ahead and pivot now uh, to who Satan is. This is a, hopefully a, a, a segue here, uh, thinking about fallen angels um, and his demons. So here's a, a definition, a pretty easy one for Satan. Satan is just the personal name of the head of demons. 
Satan is the personal name of the head of demons. And demons are evil angels who sinned against God and who now continually work evil in the world. Demons are evil angels who sinned against God and who now continually work evil in the world. You know, unfortunately, in our culture, we have some pretty silly things <laughs> that come to mind when we think about demons and the devil. And um, uh, there's a book that I read years ago called Screw Tape Letters. Um, it's by C.S. Lewis. And I would encourage you, if you haven't read that book, to read it. Um, it is a mind-blowing book <laughs> uh, that you really have to read slowly because uh, C.S. Lewis is writing from the viewpoint of Screw Tape, who is um, an experienced devil writing to his demon protege, Wormwood, on effective strategies for tempting humans that are assigned to him and making sure that they stay on a steady path toward winning them over. It's fascinating. It's super eye-opening. But this is one of the quotes from C.S. Lewis's book. Again, this is head demon, screw tape, speaking to his protege, Wormwood. He says, I do not think you will have much difficulty in keeping your patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you if any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it is an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. It's an interesting vantage point, but one that I think would be really helpful for us to lean into for a moment. The enemy would absolutely desire for us to be completely unaware of who he is, what his schemes are, and how we fight against him. He would love for us to think about him as this little cartoon in little red tights, right, that just prances around and causes mischief. And sometimes I think Christians can fall into one of two extremes when we think about Satan and demons uh, or demonic forces. Um, there, will, there are some who will fall into uh, one extreme of, I stepped in a pothole and I locked my keys in my car and I said a cuss word, so that must be the devil, right? <laughs> Every little thing is the devil this, the devil made me do this. We all know people, right, that have said these things to us, right? Overemphasizing the devil and his power. Does Satan tempt us to sin? A hundred percent. But oftentimes in this category, we can give almost too much emphasis and too much weight to Satan's power and influence in our life. Other times we give too little attention to Satan and demonic forces to the point that we are oblivious. We're completely aware of who he is, of what his tactics are, of what he's currently doing in the world, which is evil. Completely his work is evil, completely opposed to God, to his word, to his kingdom. So there's got to be a healthy balance here for us as followers of Jesus that are rooted in the scriptures, aware, right? Present in the word and in prayer, putting on the armor of God, like we talked about in Ephesians, rightly seeking to wage war against the spiritual attacks of the enemy. So the first thing I want us to see, backing up a bit, some history here. Satan rebelled against God. If we're going to talk about Satan, we got to go all the way back to the beginning. Isaiah 14 describes this. It says, How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, which is another term for Satan, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. This is his rebellion. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. In Ezekiel 28, he's described as a guardian cherub. So Satan was an angel, but he wasn't just like any other angel. He had high ranking, high position of the angels. But as we see in this passage, he wanted to be worshipped, right? Satan wanted to be God. And so in his uh, pride, in his puffing up of conceit, he rebelled against God. And Satan, in his pride, 
when he rebelled against God, fell from heaven. Jesus mentions this in Luke chapter 10, verse 18. And when he did that, one third of the angels fell with him. How do we know this? Revelation talks about it. It says, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven. That's where we get the one-third, also known as the fallen angels. My emphasis there. <laughs> and cast them to the earth. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. So there's a whole lot there in that passage that we could talk about. But the main thing that I want you to see from that passage, Satan rebelled against God. When Satan rebelled against God, a third of, his, a third of the angels rebelled as well. And they uh, are now fallen. As a result of sin, Satan is the originator of sin. We see this in the book of Genesis, in the very beginning, Genesis 3, Satan reveals himself as a serpent, and he's described as crafty. He's in the garden with Adam and Eve, and he says to Eve, did God really say? You see him manipulating God's word. He twists God's word. He says, surely, Eve, surely you won't die if you do this. He lies to Eve. He tempts her to sin. Satan is the originator of sin. Satan is also a murderer, and he's a father of lies. My prayer this morning has been more than just information that we're learning about the enemy, is that we would really, uh, uh, as we look at the word of God, that we would just expose him, right? That we would expose him for who he truly is, his evil character, and that we would see his tactics so clearly, not just through the scriptures, but even in our own lives. And that we would begin to fight with the hope of the gospel. There's something powerful when we just say, this is who the enemy is. This is what he wants to do against you. This is his character. This is his tactic. So maybe for you, you've heard lies from the enemy, even this week, about your identity, about who you are in Christ. Perhaps he's fed you lies or currently feeding you lies about your past, about a former sin that you committed. Perhaps he's heaping shame and condemnation on you from a besetting sin. What we see from the scriptures is that Satan is a murderer. He is a father of lies. John 8 says this, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Here's how he describes him. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and a father of lies. We also see from scripture that Satan is limited in power and knowledge. We see this in Job's life. God allows, keyword allows, Satan to afflict Job with various sufferings throughout his life. So Satan is allowed by God's permission to test Job, but ultimately he gets permission from God. Job 1.12, and the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has, is in your, he has is in your hand only against him. Do not stretch out your hand. We see him giving parameters to Satan about what he is able to do. So what we learn from this is Satan is not all powerful. Satan is not all-knowing. He is limited in power and knowledge. We also see that Satan tempted Jesus to sin, and he tempts us as well. In Matthew 4, we read that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus fasted 40 days and 40 nights and was in a really, in, uh, a, a really vulnerable place, right, physically, he was hungry, and we see Satan tempt him in three different ways. The lust of the flesh, the pride of life, the lust of the eyes. 
And thankfully, if you read this, this passage, you see Jesus as our perfect example of what it looks like to uh, take on temptation, to take on the enemy um, with the word of God. Every single time Jesus claimed the words of scripture, right? He held to the word of God and he overcame the enemy's temptation. You and I are tempted in these same ways, right? We see this every day in our lives. You and I are tempted to give into our fleshly cravings. You and I are tempted to boast in ourselves and to receive glory and adoration for God, uh, for what God deserves. You and I are tempted to look lustfully upon things and upon people to ultimately receive our worship that only God deserves. So we see Satan as a tempter. Here's an interesting truth. Until Satan is condemned and thrown into hell, he is roaming between heaven and earth. One common myth um, that we see um, in our culture um, uh, is that the devil is the ruler of hell. Remember that false image that we have of, of Satan with a pitchfork, right? In red tights, like the, the cartoon version of him. Ultimately, we are, sometimes we think of him as this leader of hell and this ruler of hell. But scripture would tell us that Satan is not the ruler of hell. In fact, he will be a prisoner of hell. Satan, along with demons and unbelievers, hell is a real place of eternal separation from God. Revelation 20 says this, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Revelation tells us that in the end times, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. He will not be the ruler of anything. His end is already determined. He will be a prisoner of hell. And so a natural question that comes from that, well, is if he's not there, well, where is he, right? And so until Satan is condemned and thrown into hell, he is roaming between heaven and earth. Job 1.6 says this, one day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Satan is temporarily the ruler of this world. He is the ruler of the ways of this world. Satan is the deceiver of the whole world. Ephesians chapter 2, we see this so clearly. This is uh, Paul writing uh, to believers, but he describes really clearly for those who are dead in sin what this means. It says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. He's deceived. Following the prince of the power of the air, he's deceiving. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Satan is the ultimate deceiver. Satan causes spiritual blindness. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says this. In their case, the God of this world, little g God, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This means that Satan causes people to see God for, to, to not see God for who he really is, so that they would not repent of their sins, so that they would not trust in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. Many of us have people in our lives who we would say they are spiritually blind, right? The veil has not been lifted. And so would we be men and women who are prayerful, right? Towards people, loved ones, and, and even strangers that we encounter, that they would be awakened to the hope of the gospel. Because the enemy would love to continue to blind them spiritually from seeing the goodness of God, from seeing the forgiveness and the love of God, from seeing the hope of the gospel. And until the Holy Spirit lifts that veil from their eyes, Satan is causing them to be spiritually blind. How else is it, excuse me, why else is it important to know about Satan and demonic forces? This is an important one. Our war is not against flesh and blood. 
This one in particular, I need to be reminded of really, really consistently. So many times in our culture, we want to point the finger, right? Make it about us versus them. We're critical. We gossip. We oppose. We slander. We take sides. This is the world that we live in. And yet what the scriptures remind us of is that our war ultimately... Sure, do we have disagreements? Do we have dissensions with one another? Do we have things that rub each other the wrong way? Yes. But ultimately, our war is not against flesh and blood. Ephesians 6.12 tells us, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against uh, the, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Satan's ultimate goal is to steal, kill, and destroy you. But Jesus came to give life. John 10 tells us, this is Jesus speaking here. He says, the thief, known as the devil, comes only, his primary mission, to steal, to kill, to destroy you and your life. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. As we're talking about these things, are you seeing his character? Are you seeing how evil he is? Are you seeing his tactics of what he really wants from you? <laughs> of really the ways that he is working in the world. Satan is the originator of sin. He is a murderer and a father of lies. Satan is the accuser, the tempter, he is the one to cause spiritual blindness. And he wants to steal, kill, and destroy your life. But Jesus came to give life. In Jesus Christ is life and life eternal. And because we know his character, we also must know his tactics. Paul gives us a strong warning and a strong word of admonition here. He says, finally, be strong. How? In the Lord. How do we do that? In the strength of his might, we put on the whole armor of God so that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Paul says, believers, be strong in the Lord. Not in your own strength, not in your own wisdom, not in your own experience, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. For those of you who uh, played uh, maybe high school sports, um, when you would prepare for uh, uh, the next opposing team that you were going to play against, what you probably did was watch film on that team. You studied their tactics. You studied um, their, their best players, right? You tried to figure out all right, if we're going to defeat this team, we got to study their strategies. What kind of offense are they running? Do they like to run the ball? Do they like to pass the ball? Who are their standout players, right? If you want to be prepared for the game, most importantly, to defeat your enemy, you've got to know who your opponents are and how they operate. And the same is true for us as followers of Christ. We must know his tactics and to be prepared. So I'm going to uh, hopefully go some practical ways from here. Um, I, I've given uh, a lot of time and energy towards the enemy, and I, I'm not going to leave you with that. My hope is that we will uh, leave with gospel truth to be reminded of, of who we are in Christ, but also how we take stand against the schemes of the enemy. And the first and most important truth, let me just say this, that I'm about to share is this one. Christ nullified Satan's power on the cross. Can I get an amen, somebody, on that one? <laughs> Christ nullified Satan's power on the cross. If you miss this, you miss all of it, right? If you miss this, you're going to leave feeling defeated. You're going to leave feeling sad. You're going to leave feeling overwhelmed. In the world that we live in, that is broken, that is desperate, that is ravaged with sin, we see that Satan really is the ruler of this world, but as followers of Jesus, as men and women who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished for us on the cross, we remember what he has done. 
through Jesus' death and resurrection. He has defeated sin. Jesus has defeated death. Jesus has defeated hell. And yes, Jesus has defeated Satan himself. Christ nullified Satan's power on the cross. Colossians 2 Paul says this, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Amen to that. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Check this out. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. We serve a triumphant king, one who is an overcomer, one who is victorious. Revelation 12 says that for those who are in Christ have conquered the enemy by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. So if you are here this morning and you are in Jesus Christ, you have overcome sin and temptation and the enemy, not through your own power, not through your own strength, or not through your own wisdom, but by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony. You can just say, Jesus, you have paid for my sin, <laughs> right? Jesus, you have atoned for my sin. Jesus, you said it is finished on the cross once and for all. And so my hope is there. My foundation is there. Not in my own strength, not in my own wisdom or abilities, but in your gospel. So with this gospel that we believe in, that has changed us, that has transformed us, that we cling to, with the Spirit of God. Guys, the Holy Spirit of God lives inside of us. And with him inside of us, we resist him. James 4 tells us, submit yourselves, humble yourselves, therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. That is a promise we can hold on to. The Greek word for resist means to take a complete stand against. May that be true of us, men and women, that we take complete stands against the schemes of the enemy with God's word. He gives us the power to stand against, to resist the devil when temptation comes. And the scriptures promise that he will flee from us. We must give him no opportunity. Ephesians 4, Paul tells us, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let me just ask you this. In what areas of your life are you giving the devil an opportunity to creep in? In what areas of your life are you giving the devil an opportunity to creep in? Peter would tell us to be sober-minded and to be watchful. Your adversary prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. As Matt Chandler puts it, do you treat the devil like a house pet? Do you let him hang out in your bedroom and snuggle him? Meanwhile, forgetting that he is a fierce predator that wants to steal from you, that wants to kill you, that wants to destroy you. Are you giving him opportunities to devour you? to let your guard down, to dabble in sin, to not be watchful and attentive, but lackadaisical and unintentional in your living. We must give him no opportunity. We wage war. Second Corinthians 10 says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. Why? For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul says, as followers of Jesus, our battle is different 
Paul instructs us to live differently. He says, we don't wage war like the world does. We wage war differently with the weapons that he has given us, taking on, taking on the full armor of God. Any lofty opinion that the enemy would try to release against us or proclaim against us, we take it captive. How do we do that? We do that through the word of God. And we obey him. With the spirit of God living in us, we live without fear of the enemy. Because our hope is in Jesus Christ and what he has accomplished on our behalf, we can live without fear of the enemy, guys. Paul tells us we have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. 1 John 4 says, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. He is greater. My final point is this. Remember that Satan's influence will one day be gone forever. Remember that Satan's influence will one day be gone forever. Second Thessalonians tells us this, and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Paul speaks here to the reality that one day Satan's influence will be gone forever with a spoken word, with the breath of his mouth. He will bring to an end. He will do away with. He will destroy the works of Satan. And one day he will be cast into the lake of fire and his influence will be no more. Until then, God has us here. Men and women, as people who have trusted in Jesus Christ's death on the cross and his resurrection, men and women who believe in the hope of the gospel, he's given us his word, which is powerful, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, pierces into dividing spirit, joint and marrow, judging the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. His word is powerful. His word is able to refute and disarm anything that the enemy would try to bring against us. He has given us the Holy Spirit to lead and to guide us as we seek, not in our own strength, not in our words, not in our wisdom, to wage war against the schemes of the enemy. Y'all, God is for us. He is for us. He is not against us. He's given us all the tools that we need to live victoriously in this life. And because Christ is victorious, we can live victorious. It's true. I wouldn't be saying that if it wasn't true. Because Christ is victorious, you and I can live victorious. And aren't you thankful that we get to do this, right? That we get to sit in living rooms and we get to sit in the Boys and Girls Club gymnasium and be reminded of the truths of God's word. We need to remind each other of these truths. That God is for us and not against us. That he's got a good plan for us. That when temptation comes, yes, we have been given all of these tools, but we've also been given one another, right? To link arms with, to pray with, to encourage throughout our journey of following Jesus. Let's continue to encourage one another with the truth of God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your good and perfect character and there really is something powerful when we just say out loud, this is who the enemy is. This is his character. These are his tactics. But then in the same breath, just to say, this is who you are. <laughs> that you are powerful. And that you have overcome sin, death, hell, Satan himself. And that our hope and our victory is in you. 
But God, we are also keenly aware that there are real spiritual uh, uh, forces, demonic forces working against us, actively against God's word and his kingdom. And so would you help us band together, being submitted to your word, living on mission for the sake of the gospel so that you may be honored, that you may be glorified, that others would know you and that they would love you and that they would trust you for eternity. And God, with such a a lofty topic like this, it can be hard to to bring these things down to our day-to-day, what does this mean for me uh, in my life and, and how I'm living as a follower of Jesus. And so I just pray in these next moments as we reflect on your word, God, that these things would take root in our hearts and that they really would cause us to see um, your good creation. Um, God, that we would see your word as good and beautiful and right, but that it would also cause us to worship you God, to think that angels in heaven are worshiping you now with loud voices, singing resoundingly, crying out, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord, and that we have the opportunity to join them in that song, to resoundingly cry out with them, holy are you, Lord, and to give our worship and our attention and our affection and our adoration to you and you alone the one who is worthy of our worship. Jesus, thank you for going to the cross to pay for our sin debt that we could never pay. Thank you for the empty tomb and that you have proven yourself victorious. We love you. Thank you for loving us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I want to kind of filter our uh, reflection time a bit. Sam spoke um, two weeks ago just to introduce this series to us. Um, And one of the things he really talked about was that doctrine is more than information, right? I I shared a lot of information with you this morning. Hopefully it wasn't too overwhelming for you. Hopefully you were tracking with me. Probably should have forewarned you to buckle up a bit. but, but more than information, my prayer is that these things would become transformational, that these truths that we're hearing in the word of God really would ground us and that they would cause us to worship God for who he is, for what he's done and what we are called to as a result. And so um, I want to encourage you, uh, we're going to pass the mic here in just a moment, just to reflect on the word of God, but to answer one of these questions, and here's the questions, I want to review them. Sam asked these questions regarding doctrine. What does this doctrine teach me about God? How does my understanding rightly of this doctrine impact my view of God and or my relationship with him? How am I encouraged in my faith by this doctrine? How does this doctrine help me to love and worship God more? And what impact does this doctrine have on my day-to-day life? So, um... I think Sam might have the mic. Mike has the mic. Um, Whoever would like to be bold and go for it. to go first since I have to go back on stage in a sec. (laughs) Um, I wanted to ask um, what your opinion and advice was into further study of angels, demons, um, all of this fun stuff that can be controversial and a lot of people have been and continue to be led astray. Mm -hmm. Um, How would you say um, that we're to study this more and, and, you know, using those resources, those Wayne Gruder books are fantastic. I need to buy those and have those for my shelf. Um, I already have just one book by Wayne Grudem. Actually, I think it's Sally Scaris. Sorry, Sally. (laughs) Um, But I know it's important to consider um, these five points of um, interpreting doctrine for us, but what's the best way to 
look at scripture and not be, you know, looking at it with the lens of something false, you know, mm-hmm. of, you know, being terrified of demons for one thing or, or something like that, or, or using angels to just be cute, fluffy, cuddly little things. You know, how can we interpret scripture rightly using those same resources? What's your advice for that? Yeah. Outside of those resources, there was actually a resource I was going to recommend um, that I forgot to. It's called gotquestions.org. Um, so this, uh, these are uh, pastors that would very much align with sound theology, what we would teach here at Redstone Elizabethan. Um, essentially, these are questions that people can ask about literally anything, right? Like any kind of particular doctrine. But one, Kathy, to answer your question, they have an entire section um, about angels that answers um, some more uh, outline questions, maybe about angels that I wouldn't talk about on a a Sunday morning, uh, particularly because it's not the most foundational thing that I want you to take away, but ones that are super helpful in understanding more of a full scope of who angels are, Uh, what they do, what their purposes are. And so they're excellent at bringing in the scriptures, giving context for those scriptures, um, and helping you see different viewpoints as well. But one, you know, to mention the Wayne Grudem, I haven't looked at a lot of resources particular to this doctrine, but one that I appreciate about Wayne Grudem is his systematic theology in that he does give different differing viewpoints, uh, particular to different denominations or different church beliefs and things like that. And so Um, He will always tell you, hey, here's where I land, right? Here's where I feel is the most sound theological statement. Um, But it is helpful sometimes to get a a fuller scope of of maybe what other, uh, you know, denominations think and things like that. But gotquestions.org is a great resource. So the, the last question, uh, what impact does this doctrine have on my day-to-day life? I thought of two. One was if the battle is in the heavenlies, you know, our prayers should reflect that. So tendency for me is, you know, Lord, kill this person <laughs> or send them to prison or whatnot instead of, Lord, uh, speak to this person, free him, remove the influences or the forces that are working on this person or group or whatever. So prayer, I I thought of that verse in Daniel where uh, I think it was Michael or one of them came to him and said, you know, I was sent right away, but I was held up by the prince of Persia. And, And then Daniel says, you know, oh, the angel told him only one only, only Michael helps me. And then Daniel says he vowed to stand on his behalf as well, to work with them or to pray for him or whatever. I don't know. But. And then the other passage was, I think, you didn't mention it, but in Hebrews it says something about entertaining strangers mm-hmm. and, and doing some have entertained angels. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, just entertaining, being... Uh, hospitable or whatever to, to other people, to strangers, you may be entertaining angels. And, and I thought of the passage in Genesis where the three men came to Abraham and, and he immediately fixed them, had a meal fixed for them. And, you know, two of them evidently were angels who went on to Sodom. And so maybe they can take bodily forms at times. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks, Russ. Those are great, great examples. I think in, uh, in our American culture, it could be really uncomfortable to talk about the unseen, uh, to talk about things other than what we see under a microscope or what our computer chips can process. Um, and I think that bleeds into the culture of the American church, too. Um, some discomfort comes with talking about these things. Particularly, um, you know, we can, it's easier to kind of swallow, like, oh, there's like a guardian angel that, like, watches over me and protects me while I'm sleeping. It's a little more difficult to, to swallow the fact that there are beings for the other side that are actively trying to get us to forget about God, to not believe that there is a Savior who took on flesh 
and who conquered death and who has freed us to be with him eternally. Uh, but what, the, what this does for me, I guess this hits toward question number two to consider. Um, how does understanding it impact my view of God and my relationship with him? Um, this reminds me that my God is not a God who's limited into the realm of existence I'm familiar with, which makes it him a little scary, but also a lot more powerful than normally what comes to my mind when I think about God. Um, and I, th I think kind of, uh, that was kind of similar to, I think the way they describe Aslan in the uh, Chronicles of Narnia, right? Is he, is he safe? No, but is he good? Yes. Um, or something, maybe I botched that, but something <laughs> like that. Um, so this kind of does that for me with, with our God that, and in scripture, when it says he's the, the Lord of hosts, the, the ruler of armies, the God, um, uh, there's, I don't know, there's, there's a Greek or Hebrew term, something Sabaoth, which is like the Lord almighty who directs armies. Um, that's a powerful kingly God. Um, uh, and, and talking about these things re reminds me of that. And I, and I looked up the Greek for, I remember the Greek for angels means messenger. The Greek for Satan means enemy, but I couldn't, I couldn't remember what, uh, what demon was linked to. Um, and I looked it up briefly. I wish Luke Smythe was here. Um, maybe he is. I don't, I haven't seen him. Uh, the Greek, the Greek scholar among us, but anyway, the, the daimonion or which is a lesser deity of impurity is, mm -hmm. is, is what I uh, think uh, most often in the Greek is trans what we translate as what we think of as demon, a lesser deity, but of impurity. Mm -hmm. um, and I just see God as not, it's not that God is the one and only spiritual being. And so that's why I worship him. It's that he is higher than every other. Mm. And that causes me to worship him more. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Brandon. Uh, for resources, uh, for continuing kind of the, the education on demonology and, and spiritual warfare, I would actually recommend Dr. Marcus Warner, um, anything from Deeper Walk International. He's got a very short book um, called What Every Believer Should Know About Spiritual Warfare that is very good. And I would recommend uh, that and it's, it's actually not too expensive on Amazon if you want uh, either a digital copy or uh, a paperback, but it's actually a very good resource and they, they do a lot of study on, on this topic. So I'd recommend them. That's great. I remember you mentioning him before. Thanks, Andrew. I think maybe Jana, did you want to share? Okay. So number five, what impact does this doctrine have on my day-to-day -day life? Well, when we become aware of who the enemy is in light of who God is, you already addressed this, then we have the power to disarm him. And what does that look like in our day-to-day? -day? When we're lying in bed at night and we've managed to fall asleep and end up with a dream that you wake up and there's fear in your spirit, when we know there's fear, well, who is that from? We know that's from the enemy. And if we can know that's from the enemy, then we can know, as it says, I think you said Second Timothy, mm -hmm. um, where it talks about God has not given us a spirit of fear. Um, therefore, it's not from God. If we know it's the enemy, we know that God has already conquered the enemy. And we can stand in that and we can proclaim that. And the enemy flees. And he doesn't get to stay there. And he doesn't get to allow the fear to take over that keeps us from getting sleep. And um, yeah, just proclaiming it. There's power in his name and it's incredible. Amen. I'll probably be the last one. Just to say, first off, thank you. That was, we were kidding when we gave you that topic. We didn't mean you for you to actually take it and run with it, but <laughs> dude, you did and you, you killed it. So that was good. So thanks for that. Um, in thinking about what Larry Kimball said earlier, we were getting ready to jump into second Peter in the fall. And I think it's in chapter three in second Peter, there is a statement, it's this parenthetical statement. You've heard me say it before, where it says, in a, in a man is a slave to whatever's mastered him. 
And I think about the enemy. He wants to kill, to, you know, to steal and destroy. And sometimes that's in such subtle ways of making us feel like, oh, I'm alone. Or I'm stuck in my sin. Or that thing that I did, I'm not forgiven for it. Or this temptation or this, this, this lure that is before me, I can't say no to that thing. You know, and the enemy is like, well, I've got him right where I want him. So in thinking about number five, what impact does this doctrine have on my day-to-day life? Man, I go back to that chapter uh, 12 of Revelation, and it says that the enemy wants to come against us, and it says, but they overcame him, talking about us as believers, and you know this passage because you, you referenced part of it, and it says, but they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, right? Jesus made a spectacle of the enemy on the cross. He defeated the enemy once and for all on the cross by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony. And I believe that this Jesus took all of my shame and all of my guilt and all my loneliness and all of those things. And he defeated those as well. And I am victorious and holy in him. And it says the third one, and they did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. And the third response to that is like, okay, well, what does that have to do with my day-to-day life? I will die for him. I'm willing to die for him. The only thing that the enemy could possibly do would be to take my life, and even there, I am victorious. And to believe that and to say that, to live that out, it completely hamstrings, hamstrings, that's the right word, you know, the enemy. He has no power over us at all. Now, I believe what Christ has done. I believe that it affects my heart and my life and and has forgiven me, and, and I'm victorious because of that. And you know what? I am going to follow him, and I'm willing to die for him. Mm. Can you do anything against that? There's not a thing he can do. Mm. So, anyway, thank you. Great great. topic. Thank you. That's encouraging. Um, Well, let's stand together and worship um, the God who has overcome sin, death, hell, the grave, Satan himself. And we get to sing along with the angels this morning. So, let's worship together.